Would you please stand as we hear the word of the Lord? I'll be starting in Galatians 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively, for the, woman, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Amen. Amen. Thank you, buddy. Good job. Good job. Thanks, Brennan, for reading that. We come today uh, to what almost every single commentator says and will tell you is by far the most difficult passage in Galatians. Now, I now regret not having given this passage to my dad when we planned the series um, because I typically like to give him the tough things. You know, whenever there's an issue at church and there's a demonic involved, we always send them to dad. Um, not long ago, we had a lady show up at the church just off the street. She said, I need help, and I just thought I would come to the church. And we are like, hey, that's great. You came to the right place. We can help you. And, and she said, well, I think I have a demon. And I said, really? Uh, so uh, what makes you think that? And she said, well, I hear this voice telling me to, to kill you. And, and I, I said, we can help you. My dad's office is up the stairs around the corner. And she did get delivered, by the way. But usually my point is I give the tough cases to dad. Uh, but I didn't do that, so I got to deal with this tough one. And it's a tough case because Paul here is going to take a historical event, and, and not just a historical event, but one that deeply offends, and rightfully so, our modern sensibilities. I mean, in, in this story, a woman is treated like property. She's sexually abused. She's a victim. Uh, and so it, it's a story that kind of offends us. But, but then Paul is going to take this historical story, and he's going to interpret this literal historical event figuratively to speak about Mount, Mount Sinai in Arabia. And then he's going to say Jerusalem above is our mother. And by the way, the barren woman is going to have more children than the woman who has a husband. And about the time you're scratching your head and you're thinking maybe Paul drank one too many of those glasses of wine that he told Timothy to drink. And you're asking yourself, you know, how in the world does this apply to me? And, 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 and what am I most supposed to make out of this and where I'm living today? He gets to his conclusion. And his conclusion is, therefore, we are children of the free woman, so we're free. So act like it. That's the big idea. I mean, the, the big idea is this. Christ set us free to be free, so be free. 
That's the conclusion. That, that's the big idea. Christ set us free. Why? So we be free. So what do we do? Be free. And, and you think, probably when I just said that, you think, well, I like where we kind of ended up there, but do we have to take such a long route to get there? I mean, did we have to drive to Miami to get to Detroit? What in the world? I mean, because it feels like, doesn't it, when you read that, doesn't it feel like Paul kind of buried the lead there? What are we to make of this? Well, it's a tough text, but just I want you to remember something. Sometimes the hardest things in life are where we experience the presence of God the most. You ever notice this? Sometimes, you know, God's with you all the time, but you start going through a tough time, and now you're crying out to him. And in the middle of that tough time is when you experience his grace like never before. You experience his power. You see miracles when you get in trouble because that's when you need a miracle. You experience his love. You experience his tender presence. Sometimes the hardest things in life is where you experience the presence of God the most. Do you remember that story in, in the book of Daniel? Daniel chapter 3, there were these three Hebrew young children and uh, young men, and they were told by a pres- uh, the president, no, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, Sorry, I just flashed the, the, the president. Uh, that was not a Freudian slip, by the way. It was, the, it was the King Nebuchadnezzar, and he said, you have to bow down when the music plays. And these three Hebrew young men said, we're not bowing down. And we want you to know, our God is able to save us, and he will save us. But know this, even if he doesn't, we're not bowing to your idols. And then they took him, they, and he said, okay, fine, I'm going to throw you in the fire. And they said, throw us in the fire. They threw them in the fire, and remember, the fire didn't eat them up because sometimes God delivers you from the fire, and sometimes he delivers you through the fire. But I want you to notice that it was in the fire that they met God because Nebuchadnezzar looks in, and he, he's looking in, and he's seeing four people in there, and he turns and he said, how many people do we throw in there? And there were like three, and they're like, well, there's four in there now. And the fourth one looks like the son of man. Here's the deal. When you're in the fire, just keep your eyes open. Look out for the fourth man. Because a lot of times it's in the fire that you meet God. So we're in a tough text today. Just keep your eyes open and look out for the fourth man to show up. Because he will. Now, before I go into this and kind of unpack it, I want to I just let you in on something that I do when I come to a, a difficult text in Scripture. And, and there's a promise in the Word of God that when I get to a tough part that I don't understand, I pull out this promise and I pray this promise to God, okay? It's 2 Timothy 2.7, and here's the promise. Uh, Paul says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, this is a promise that we need to stop and just stand on for a minute here and and pray back to God because a lot of people, they go to one or the other side of this uh, text, right? They say, think over. They emphasize the beginning of the text, the first half, think over, and they emphasize the role of reason, and we got hard work, and we need to dig into the commentaries and do the historical work. And, and, And in doing that, they will minimize the supernatural role of God in helping us understand the Bible, and they will say things like, well, anybody can come to the Bible, read it, think hard, study, and understand it. And they will focus on reason. But then there's people on the other side who will focus on the second half. The Lord will give you understanding. And so they will say, reason is futile. There's futility of reason. Uh, think all you want, study all you want, but there's a mystery. And they will emphasize the role of the Holy Spirit to illumine the mind. But Paul doesn't go either way, does he? He doesn't go, he says, think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding. John Piper wrote a book called Reading the Bible Supernaturally, which is a great title for a book. I wish I had written this book. He says this, he says this commenting on this verse. He says, notice the little word for. 
It means that the will of God to give us understanding is the ground of our thinking, not the substitute for it. Paul does not say, God gives you understanding, so don't waste your time thinking over what I say. He does not encourage us to substitute prayer for thinking, but to saturate thinking with prayer. Nor does he say, think hard over what I say because it all depends on you and God does not illumine the mind. No. He emphatically makes God's gift of illumination the ground of our deliberation. Isn't that a great sentence? Again, I wish I had written that. Listen to what he's saying. He makes God's gift of illumination. Since God illumines the mind, that is the ground for us to be thinking. He makes God's gift of giving light the reason for our pursuing light. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding. So we're gonna, I'm going to stop right now. We're going to pray before we dive into this text this morning. We're going to pray this, okay? That we're going to think, but the Lord is going to give us understanding. Father, we do that right now. I thank you, Lord. Man, the service has been awesome, Lord, and I want to thank you for that. The worship was amazing, and Jesus, your name is above every other name, uh, and we're excited about this, and this is your word. So, Lord, I, I'm asking right now, just that we just stand on this promise. We are thinking it over, and now, Holy Spirit, will you give us understanding in everything? And we believe, since it's your promise, you'll do it, because you're faithful, and you keep your word. And so, we thank you for that, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. When you come to this text, it reminds me of a story that Tom Wright told once about he was at a rugby match, uh, and when it was pouring down rain. I mean, it was just pouring down rain, and the field was terrible. It was a real muddy field anyway, and it was pouring down rain. And so both teams got so covered in mud that the fans couldn't make out who was on which team. Like, they'd start to cheer and go, oh, that's not our team. You know, because there was so much mud all over, you know, them completely. Uh, and, and the referees were having a hard time. And even the, the players were getting confused who was on their team and who wasn't because everybody was covered in mud. And, and so the referee called a timeout, and he said they, both teams could go change into new, clean uniforms. And one of the teams said, oh, we're not doing it because we we're tough and we don't, we don't change clothes. You know, we'd be in the mud. The other team said, okay. Uh, They went in and they got into nice, warm, dry, clean clothes and they came out. And now at least you could tell who was on which team. And they played the rest of the game and the team that changed, they felt clean and they won. Now, by the time we get to this place in Galatians, Paul realizes that the whole argument between him and the circumcision group has gotten so muddy that the Galatians don't even recognize which team they're on. Right, so they, the, the, the Galatians who had been Gentile believers mostly, they came to know Jesus, they put their faith in Jesus. Paul leaves, the Jewish uh, uh, group of the circumcision comes in and says, glad you trust Jesus, but you now also need to follow the law. You need to get circumcised, you need to uh, observe the Sabbath, you need to observe these dietary laws. And, and in doing that, they were undermining not just Paul, they were undermining the gospel, And they were rebuilding the wall between Jew and Gentile. That wall had been destroyed in the gospel, and now they're rebuilding it. Because they were saying the gospel, uh, although it had made them one in Christ, they were saying, according to these Jewish Christians, there are two families of God. Yes, you have faith, but we also follow the law, so we are the real children of Abraham. Okay, And, And so being a child of Abraham was a big deal because it meant you're the real people of God. You're not a second-class citizen. You're not just a God-fearer. You're an heir. You're, you have the full right of sons. This is a big deal. You remember in John chapter 8, Jesus was talking to some Jews who had believed in him, put their faith and trust in him, and he's talking to them, and they say to him, we're children of Abraham, and we've never been slaves of anybody. 
Because he had just said, he who sins is a slave to sin. And, and we've never been slaves of anybody. And he's going, you don't even know what you're talking about. Or Luke chapter 13, you know, there's, there's a, a crippled, Jesus at the synagogue and he sees a crippled lady outside the court and he sees her and he calls her in and she's bent over, doubled over, the text says, by a spirit of infirmity. Jesus heals her, she stands up straight, you would think everybody would be happy, but the synagogue leader says, look, it's the Sabbath, you could come on another day to get healed. And Jesus said, listen, you would help your donkey out of a ditch on the Sabbath, how much more this daughter of Abraham. He just gives her, she hadn't even done anything. And he calls her a daughter. It's an important, so get the picture. You have these Galatians, okay, who came out of paganism where they had done some pretty bad stuff. Okay, the, the paganism practice in Asia Minor was pretty intense. They, they worshiped false gods. There was all sorts of promiscuity. It was muddy. They're covered in mud, and Paul preaches the gospel to them and says, you aren't saved because of your record, you're saved because of Jesus' record, and if you put your faith in him, you'll be justified. That means you're declared righteous, you're accepted by God, you're adopted by God and his family, you can call God Abba. And the Jewish Christian said, whoa, wait a second, we're God's children because we follow the law you got to follow the law to be a child of Abraham, an insider, accepted, welcomed, full rights of son. And Paul then gets to the end of Galatians 4, and he says, basically, okay, you want to talk about Abraham's son? Let's talk about Abraham's sons. Abraham actually had two sons. You with me? Let's go to the text. Verse 22, for it was written, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. Now, basically, he's referring to a story in the book of Genesis. Many of you know the story, but I'm not going to assume you do, okay? So there's this guy in Genesis 12 named Abram, and God decides he is going to bring the Messiah through the line of Abram. And he says, Abram, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And, and you're going to, your descendants are going to be huge. And he didn't have any kids, right? But God says, I'm picking you, right? And when God picks you, you picked. So he picks him and he goes, okay. And, and he's waiting and he's waiting. You know, he doesn't have any kids. He and his wife, Sarai, they're waiting. They're waiting. Finally, Sarah says to Abram, you know, she says, look, this ain't happening and I'm clearly barren. So why don't we do this? Why don't you take my maidservant, you be with her, and I'll have kids through her. Because in the ancient Near East, a maidservant, if she was given by the wife to the husband, whatever kids she had actually belonged to the wife. To the other woman. You follow me? So this was how they did it in the ancient. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying that's what they did. So she said, you do this. Abram doesn't argue in the text anyway. He doesn't go, no, honey, I don't think we should do that. He just does it. Hagar is her name. Hagar gets pregnant. And she begins to kind of disdain her, you know, Sarah. She's like, ah, I got pregnant. Because in those days, again, not right. But women's value was determined on being able to have children. Right? So Sarah's carrying a lot of shame. Hagar's looking down on her. So Sarah starts mistreating her. Hagar runs away into the desert. She gets to a stream. The angel of the Lord says, what are you doing here? And she's like, well, you didn't. She tells the story and everything. He says, you need to go back. Go back there. I'm going to bless you. And Hagar, get this now, she becomes the first person in the Bible to name God. She, calls, she names God. She says, you are the God who sees me. 
So Hagar is not a bad guy. That's what you got to understand. Because if you just read Galatians, you might think Hagar was something bad. Listen, she just, she couldn't say no. She wasn't allowed to say no. Thus, by definition, this is abuse. Okay. So she goes back. She has her baby and his name is Ishmael, right? And, and Ishmael is born. Uh, and, and after Ishmael is born, finally, there's the, they, they continue to believe the promise. And finally, the promise happens and Isaac is born. But both Ishmael is blessed and Isaac is blessed. And Ishmael becomes the father of the people groups of Arabia. And he was blessed. Now, just side note before we keep going here, I think it's easy to judge Abraham and Sarah here because we know, we've read the rest of the story and we know, dude, all you had to do was wait five more chapters. <laughs> chapter 16 and chapter 21, just wait five more chapters and you have a lot less headaches in your life, trouble in the world, come on, you know. That's all. But they didn't, ha- they didn't have the chapters to read. They were living, you know, sometimes when you're living it, it's a little bit harder to trust God. It's easy for me to have faith for your life. Because I ain't in your life. It's another thing when you're living it to trust what God says. So before we judge Abraham and Sarah, I need, we need to be careful that there's a lot of times that God speaks a promise to us and we try to make it happen in our own strength. And thus we have a bunch of Ishmaels running around. Verse 24. These things may be taken figuratively. Now here's where the text gets tricky. Because skeptics, when they read this, they'll go, aha, see, Paul didn't take the Old Testament literally, he took it figuratively. But listen, just because Paul is using the story figuratively in his argument, that doesn't mean that he doesn't think it literally happened. And if you think about this, we all do this all the time. We, I could give you a dozen examples about how we take a literal situation and we use it in an argument figuratively, but here's why this is important. Sometimes you will hear people say things like this. In fact, I was watching uh, many years ago a talk show and, they, and a lady from the crowd stood up and she quoted something from the Bible and the person doing the talk show said, and you hear people say this, you know, you take the Bible literally, but I like to take the Bible figuratively, right? That's the way I, as if we can just decide how to take what the author means, in other words, what's important really is what's important to me. It, what's important is what does it mean to me? But we all know you can't communicate this way. You can't just say, what, is it, what does it mean? What, this is what it means to me. It's what the author meant. Right? So it, let's, let's say um, uh, one of you has a problem. You got a real issue that's going on, and uh, you really need some counsel. And I say, you know what you should do? You should go see Phil Yeoman. You should go talk to Phil. He's really good at this stuff, and he loves this kind of stuff. And uh, you should go talk to Phil. And then you go talk to Phil, and he gives you the truth, and you didn't want to hear it, but he gave you the truth, and you're doing better. And you send me an email. Hey, Tim, thank you for sending me to Phil. Uh, uh, you know, he really beat me up. He told me the truth. I didn't want to hear it, uh, but it's what I needed to hear, and I got a little better, but he beat me up. And I read that, and I go, Phil beat her up? What? That is terrible. I'm calling the cops. I call the police. I would like to report an assault. Yes, uh, one of our staff members beat up one of our parishioners, and, and then the cops come to Phil's house, and then you call me and go, what are you doing, Tim? And I go, you said he beat you up. And you say, well, that's not, I didn't mean literally he beat me up. I, I, admit, I, just, he, I felt like I was beat up because he told me the truth. And then I say, well, you know, 
I know you like to say things figuratively, but I like to take things literally. What are you going to say? You're going to say, who cares how you want to take things? What matters is what I meant. Right? What matters is what did the author mean? See, if you think you can just choose how to take God's letter and it doesn't matter what the author meant, let me ask you a question. Would you dare let anyone else take your letter the way you treat God's letter? No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. So if you say, hey, it doesn't matter what the author means. It just matters what it means to me. Then I could say, thank you. I will rob your house. And you'll say, well, no, what, no, wait, what? I didn't say that. I'm like, well, you said it's not what the author meant. It's what it means to me. And Marlene and I have been looking for a new couch at a cheap price. So what that means to me is you're going to give me your couch. And of course you would say, you're crazy. But that's what people do with the Bible. Here's my point. It matters what the author meant. So when Paul says this, what does he mean? Go back to the text. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. Here's what Paul is saying. You got to stick with it. There are two ways. Paul says these two women represent two ways of relating to God or two approaches to God. The first is like the child with Hagar, you can try to approach God based on what you can control. Okay, Based on your human effort, your human ability, you can try to make things happen and try to earn acceptance or earn admittance into God's family where you can call God Abba. But the result of that approach will be slavery. Or, the second way, like the child with Sarah, you can trust God by faith and recognize that Jesus has already paid the price. Jesus has already set you free. Jesus has already made you a child of God with the full rights of inheritance. And the result of that will be freedom. Do you see that? Paul, what Paul is saying is, if you try to make yourself acceptable to God by what you do, if you're looking to something else other than Jesus to make you okay, you're going to be in slavery. So if you're saying, you know, here's what do you need to? I, here's what I need to make. I need to make partner. I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to make partner so I can achieve a certain status. And in that certain status, I'm going to have power. And because I have power, now I'm valuable. I have meaning. Now I'm worth something. Now I'm significant. If that's what you'll do, you'll be a slave to that. Or you might say, I'm going to get a PhD so I look smart and I sound smart. And people will think, man, he's so smart and I have initials after my name. And those initials after my name give me value. Those initials give me worth. Those initials give me significance. Or if you say, no, it's my family. Everything is about my family and I need everything to go just right in my family so everybody will think I'm a good mom. I don't want anybody to know that my kids aren't perfect because I need to appear to be the perfect dad, right? Because that's, that's where I'm getting my identity. I'm justified by being a good dad. So that's what I need. Or maybe for some of you, it's being beautiful or, or, or sexually attractive. That, and, and, and you need that to feel good about yourself. And, 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 so, and if that's what you need, if that's your idol, if that's what you're looking to to justify yourself, you might spend countless hours and countless dollars working on your hair, your makeup, your clothes, working out, taking supplements, because you think your value is determined by who desires you. And you think if someone desires me, then I'm desirable. 
So you gotta have it. Or maybe it's approval. You just need I, need, I need people to approve and like me. And, and, and if they like me, if they think I'm spiritual or if they think I'm smart or if they think I'm funny or I'm cool or whatever. Listen, all of those things are good things. But if you look to those things to justify you, Paul is saying, you will be in slavery to those things because you will need them. You have to have them to be okay. And if you don't have them, it's not that you're a little sad. No, you're devastated. If something gets in your way and you can't get those things, you get t- it's not just that you get touchy, you get uncontrollably angry. Why? Because that was your God that you looked to to justify you. And Paul is saying, if you look to that, you're going to be a slave. Next verse, verse 26. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. <laughs> what? I know this sounds weird, but here's what Paul's trying to say. You are now, if, you, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you are now already a citizen of the Jerusalem above. Already. You know, a mother city is where you're a citizen, where you have rights, and where you belong. And Paul is saying, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you already are a citizen of heaven. You already have the rights of heaven. You already belong there. You have a sense of belonging. And then he gives a verse that is pregnant with hope and grace. Verse 27, it's weird, but it's powerful if you understand it. He says, for it is written, be glad, O barren woman, who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than than of her who has a husband. Now, what that is, that's a quote from Isaiah 54, which was a word, and whenever you think Isaiah was written, either before the exile or during the exile, this is a word to those who were in exile, who felt barren. And what, it, what the prophet Isaiah is saying is, grace is going to turn things around. Deliverance is coming. And the prophecy of Isaiah was looking back to Genesis 16 when God looked down on two women. One was young and fertile. The other was old and barren. And he chooses to save the world through the barren one. And through her family would come another unlikely son born to another woman who had no expectation of being pregnant, not because she was barren, because she was a virgin. And through that son... His name was Jesus. All the peoples of the earth would be blessed just as was prophesied to Abraham. Wow. You know what that means? God can bring fruit out of what seems to be fruitless. So if you're here today and and you feel like your life is fruitless and you're like, is is my life changing anything? Am I even making a difference? If If you feel like that, I want you to keep on looking because you are precisely the type of person God uses to change the world. You might say, I don't really feel that right now. What I feel is fruitless. I feel barren. I feel like... You hear this promise from Isaiah that connects us both to Genesis and Galatians? More are the children of the barren woman. Wow. Verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. 
At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. Again, we don't have time to do this, but if you went back to Genesis 21, you will see that Ishmael, after Isaac was born, Ishmael was mocking him. And so Hagar and Ishmael had to be sent away. Here in Galatians, Paul is saying, those who are of the circumcision are persecuting those who believed in justification by faith. And Paul says, it's always going to be that way. It's what he says right here. Ishmael's will always persecute Isaac's. Why? Listen, because in some ways, the gospel is more threatening to religious people than to non-religious people. Religious people are touchy about their standing with God, so they get very defensive against anything that might say their deeds are useless before God. They go, hey, wait a second. I pray a lot. I go to church every, I got to listen to Tim Parrish every Sunday. I ought to get something for that. I serve in the children. I, I, I tutor kids. I, I do this. I do that. So I'm okay because I do all of these things. See, one of the ways that you know that you're trying to justify yourself by your works is that you are so easily angered and you want to persecute anybody who disagrees with you. By contrast, one of the ways that you know that you're really Man, I'm finding my identity in Jesus and in the gospel and what he's done is that you aren't hateful and hostile to people who differ from you. You know why? Because it, you, your acceptance is already based on what Jesus did. You don't need them to think you're spiritual. And because of that, you're free to love them. And you know there's nothing that you do that makes you acceptable to God. Jesus already did that. So if you get real religious, you get upset real easy. But if you believe the gospel and you let it in, it's hard to offend you. See, sometimes how we respond in the heat of the moment, what comes out of us just reveals what was in us. And you know what we often do? We'll often try to blame the crisis as as if it created that in us. And all it did was reveal what was already in you. (laughs) You know, you go through something hard. Oh, that happened and it made me like this. No, it just revealed that was already in you. When you react in anger, when someone questions you, it reveals what you value and it reveals that you just need the gospel. You need to let it in deeper. Verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. In other words, if you are trying to get your acceptance and your inheritance from God based on what you do, you're never going to have your inheritance. And what is that? The inheritance is the freedom. You're never going to walk in freedom if you're constantly trying to earn your acceptance by God instead of just going, Jesus did it all. Do you see that? Does anybody hear what I'm saying? Because I can't tell because I can't see you. I can't tell if y'all mad at me right now. I can't tell. I can't just, but... All right. Look at the rest of this verse. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Here's what he's saying. This is an issue of identity. This is who you are, so be who you are. To live in this freedom, you're going to have to believe that this is who you are, that you're a child of the free woman. 
Because listen, your identity comes first, behavior follows. See, a lot of times the reason that we, we, we've got a hard time with, with kids trying to get them to act like a Christian is we're trying to get them to act like a Christian before they become a Christian. In the Bible, it's identity first. You read all of Paul's letters, you know, it's basically the first part is here's who you are. Now, here's how you should act. But he spent three chapters, a lot of times, like in Ephesians, other places, Colossians, you know, he spends multiple chapters saying this is who you are. Now, this is how you should act. It doesn't go the other way around. See, the circumcision group got it backwards. They said, have faith in Jesus, then follow the law, then you're in God's family. Paul said, no, Jesus already finished the work on the cross. You believe in him and you're in the family. Now, change your behavior because of who you are. But you got to believe that. See, remember a few weeks ago, now it seems like it was like six months ago, but it was just a few weeks ago, we were on Galatians 2, verse 20, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, Christ lives in me. And we talked about, you have to believe that you're already dead. Because in Romans 6, he unpacks it more, and he basically says in Romans 6, I got bad news and good news. The bad news is, the only time you're going to be free from sin is when you're dead. And at first that sounds very discouraging. But then he says, the good news is, you're already dead. Why? Because you died in Christ. Christ was your substitute. I was on the cross with Jesus. He died not just for me. He did die for me. Thank you for that. But he also died as me. Therefore, I'm dead to sin. That's the whole point of Romans 6, which he summarizes in Galatians 2. But here's the deal. What does he do? He says, you have to reckon yourselves dead. He said, the truth is you already died with Christ, but you have to consider yourself dead. You have to reckon. You have to see yourself as dead. To be free from sin. Are you following me? In the same way, when he here says, we are children of the free woman, you have to reckon yourself that. You just, it's not a work. You just believe what he said is true. Just believe, okay, if he says I'm free, then I'm free. But you have to believe it for the gospel to fully penetrate to the deepest recesses of your heart or else you won't be transformed by it. And you'll wonder why. Because you can take a theology test and you would get it right. But you're not transformed. And the reason is you haven't let the the knowledge on the paper penetrate from here all the way down into here. So that your life is formed by the gospel. Neil Anderson put it this way in his book, Victory Over the Darkness. He said, no person can consistently behave in a way that's inconsistent with the way he perceives himself. Did you hear that? If you think you are something, you're going to act like it. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't on occasion make bad decisions. and that doesn't, He says can, you can't consistently behave in a way that's inconsistent with the way you perceive yourself. So what you believe is going to lead you either to slavery or to freedom because theology determines destiny. See, every single one of you believed something this morning. When you got up, you believed something about being here this morning, and that led you to a destiny, to a a destination, right? 3402 Goose Creek Road, the building where New Life Church meets, right? But it was because you believed something that you're sitting here right now or standing or whatever, right? It was because your theology determined your destiny. If you really begin to see yourself as a child of God with the full rights of inheritance, which is freedom, That's going to affect how you act. You're going to be amazed at how transformed you really are if you'll just believe the gospel. 
You'll be amazed at how transformed you are if you will just let it in that you are who God says you are. And you know what? You won't be working it up. See, some of you, you're trying to change yourself. You're trying to beat the have, be habit. And it's because you're working on the behavior before you work on the identity. <laughs> See, if you let the gospel in, you're not going to be just working it up. You're not going to be creating little Ishmaels running around everywhere. It won't be a result of you striving to change yourself in your flesh. It's just a result of the gospel. Then we get to the crescendo of Paul's argument, the last verse that was read, chapter 5, verse 1. You know the chapter divisions were put in way, way later. Paul didn't. Paul wasn't going chapter 1, verse 1. He just wrote the letter. And so this really goes with the argument. Chapter 5, verse 1 is the crescendo, the thesis statement, if you will. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. This is the big idea. This is where he's been going the whole chapter. Basically, the big idea is Christ set us free to be free. So be free. <laughs> be free. Whatever your circumstances are. I know some of you are thinking, I can only be free if such and such happens. I can only be free if this person changes. I can only be free if I have more money. I can only be free if there's a different diagnosis. I can only be free. Christ came to set us free so that we would be free. So be free. I'll close with this story. In World War II, there was a Highland Scot. His name was Murdo McDonald, if you didn't think he was a Scottish fellow, just that name alone right there is Scottish enough. And he was, he was taken as a prisoner of war in Germany. And in and at this uh, prison camp in Germany, there was a fence that divided where the British soldiers were housed on one side and the American soldiers were housed on the other side. Uh, but uh, Murdo McDonald was a chaplain and he was Scottish. And there was another guy who was a Scottish fellow who was a chaplain. And so one of them was on the British side, and one of them was on the American side, and they were allowed once a day to come to the fence and to talk to each other. And of course, the guards would listen in. But they quickly discovered that while the guards could speak German and English and French, they couldn't speak Gaelic, right? Ancient language of Scotland, right? The Scottish Highlanders. And so they every day would speak to each other in Gaelic, and the German soldiers couldn't, no offense to anybody here from Germany, uh, it, but they, they couldn't understand what they were saying, and they could communicate. Well, unbeknownst to the German guards, the Americans had smuggled in somehow a shortwave radio, and they were getting news from the front every day, and they would give the news to McDonald. He would go to the, to the, the fence there, and he in Gaelic, he would tell the other side, and they would go in, and so the Brits would know what was going on. One day, the news comes down. Germany has surrendered. War's over. We win! McDonald gets the news. He goes to the fence very calmly, tells him in Gaelic. The other chaplain says, thank you very much. He turns around. He goes back into the British bunks, and within seconds, there's a cheer. Woohoo! Yeah. You know, the German guards don't know what's going on because the communication was so bad 
they didn't know they had surrendered. So for the next three days, they were still prisoners in a sense. But McDonald said, when the news came, they started walking around like they weren't at a prison camp. They started walking around like they were at a party. (laughs) They were in a prisoner of war camp, but they were free. Still in prison, but free. And everything changed with the news. They didn't complain about the food anymore. They actually kind of enjoyed the food, you know. They didn't hate the guards anymore. They actually felt sorry for the guards. And they would actually smile at the guards. They were telling each other jokes. They're in a prisoner of war camp. As free as they can be. Four days later, they woke up. The guards had just heard what had happened. The guards all left and the gates were open. And here's what McDonald says. You've got to hear this because it will drive home Galatians 5.1. He said this. We were liberated by the news before we were liberated by the guards. Listen, there are some of you here today who you feel like you're in a prisoner of war camp. You feel enslaved by an addiction. Maybe you feel trapped by a, a bad business deal. Or maybe, maybe you feel imprisoned in a bad marriage. Or maybe, maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's our current cultural moment just makes you feel chained. Listen, what is the gospel? It's news. The gospel means the good news. It's not the good advice. It's the good news that Jesus already won. The enemy has surrendered and we're the victors. We win. So just like those POWs, if you will let the gospel in, if you'll let that news in, it'll change you on the inside even if your circumstances on the outside haven't changed yet. Now, one day they're going to change. You say, well, how do you know that? Oh, I, I know you, you don't know that. Yes, I do know that. Well, how do you know that? I'm going to tell you how I know that. Because there's coming a day there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and Jesus is going to come back, and his kingdom is going to be here in fullness, and justice is going to reign, and righteousness is going to rule, and every wrong will be made right. That day is coming. It's coming. but I don't have to wait till then to be free. I can be free right this moment. And you know what? So can you. You don't have to wait for other people to change to be free. You don't have to wait until you get a better report to be free. You don't got to wait till you got more money to be free. You just got to let the news in. You just got to let the news in. And the news is this. Jesus is Lord. And Christ has set us free to be free. So be free.